Zechariah. So the Bible reading today is from Zechariah 9, verses 1 to 10, verses 5. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to us, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son's Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and the new wine the young woman. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see vision, visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for the lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. 
Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them, and they will put the enemy horsemen to shame. The second reading is from John 12, verses 12 to 16. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Thanks so much, Tabby. Uh, why don't we pray as we begin? Uh, dear Father, we pray that you be with us. Help us to understand what you've said to us, uh, to see Jesus in these words of Zechariah, and to know how to live for him as a result. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, welcome again, family and friends of the Bezekin. It's, it's so great to have you with us here. And uh, if you are new to the church thing, let me just explain that uh, our custom is to spend a bit of time uh, reading the Bible and then just working through in explaining it and uh, trying to understand what God is saying to his people through uh, this passage in Zechariah. And uh, again, at this time yesterday, I had no idea that I would be your preacher today. Uh, but as uh, Alex uh, told us, the staff team is uh, dropping like COVID flies, so I'm sorry you're stuck with the uh, reserve grade call up, I'm sorry. Uh, but thankfully, our senior minister, Wall, uh, sent me through his sermon script, which was just so helpful in my preparation for this morning. And I'm very grateful for his insights into Zechariah chapter 9, which is where we're up to in our series through the book of Zechariah. And uh, his hard work on this passage runs right through um, what I'm going to say this morning. Well, I, I think it's no stretch to say that in the past two weeks, uh, we have all suddenly been plunged into quite a time of fear and instability, haven't we? With the war in Ukraine, uh, the floods ravaging our country, just to name two factors. And I think even more justifiably so, coming off the back of our experience of the last two years. Uh, I don't know if you feel this way, I certainly do at the beginning of this year. Do you just feel weary from what has happened and worried about what is going to happen? I certainly do. And uh, doesn't that just make you yearn for a sense of rest and peace and joy? Well, if that's you, then in Zechariah chapter 9 this morning, God's got some wonderful news. Uh, because the God of the universe also longs for us to have rest, peace, and joy, both in the midst of this world with all its worries, and even more so into eternity. And so have a quick look at uh, chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, if you have a Bible, and it'd be great to keep your Bible open so that you can follow along with the passage as we go. But just have a look at verse 9, it'll be come up on the screen as well. And this really lies at the heart of our passage this morning, where uh, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, 
daughter Jerusalem. And they are two metaphorical terms, daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem, uh, for those who belong to God and put their trust in him. You see, that's what God wants to give us. Rejoice greatly and shout in joy. So let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9 now and hear how God promises to do this. And I have three points from the passage. Uh, God will reclaim his land of peace. That's from verses 1 to 8. God will rule by his servant king. That's verses 9 to 10. And God will raise his people in joy. That's verses 11 to 17. So first, God will reclaim his land of peace. This is verses 1 to 8. Uh, Verse 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest rest on Damascus. For all, sorry, for the eyes of all people and all tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it. So chapter 9 verse 1 actually begins the second main part of the book of Zechariah, chapters 9 to 14. Uh, the first part is obviously chapters 1 to 8. And so for context, uh, these words were spoken in about 500 BC in the land of what we would call now Israel. And Zechariah starts this section of his prophecy with this list of proclamations against these ancient cities and peoples that runs all the way down to verse 7. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I read a list of cities like that, it can all actually seem a little bit random and almost fairy tale ish to us. You know, Hamath, Hadrach, who, what, where? But it's important to note that these were actually all real cities in the ancient world in what we now call the Middle East. And they were all significant because at one point or another, they had oppressed and dispossessed God's people from the territory that God had promised to give them. Uh, I've got a map coming up on the screen for you, and hopefully uh, you can see there the places named in verses 1 to 7, and they pretty much run from north to south, from top to bottom, and they belong to three particular nations in the ancient world. So Hadrach, Hamath, and Damascus belong to the kingdom of Aram, or Syria. Tyre and Sidon were the main cities of Phoenicia, and Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod, they were all in Philistia, uh, which is just there on that coastline. And they all sat on the borders of what we would call Israel, which basically takes up that middle bottom bit of the map. And they were all, by and large, hostile to them. And so if you read through the history of Israel, you'll see that these nations pretty much did whatever they could to harass Israel and make incursions into their territory. Uh, By way of illustration, I remember being on a Christian camp many years ago, and uh, the sleeping arrangements were fellas all in one big tent in one part of the camping ground and girls in one big tent in another. And as the camp went on, we started playing pranks on each other. And so the girls started it, of course, by raiding our tent and stealing all our mattresses and then locking them in the equipment container and not giving us the key, right? So we then retaliated the next night by getting our team electrician to rig up a switch from our tent running to the lights in their tent. And in the middle of the night, we'd just flick the lights on for a while (laughs) and then flick them off and then flick them back on 
etc. And so each night we'd kind of raid each other's tents and hassle each other until it all culminated on the last morning where all the fellas got up early just before the sun rose. We surrounded the girls' big top tent as they slept, unhooked all the support ropes, and then as one, let them go and just enjoyed the screams as the tent slowly and gracefully collapsed on them. Now, that's all a bit of fun, um, but it made me think of what Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia had all done to Israel, uh, not in terms of harmless pranks, but actually in violent military raids on their land. And, uh, you know, you turn on the TVs today and you see the conflict in Ukraine and you see actually the awful reality of what God's people had experienced at the hands of the nations around them for hundreds of years. So scan down to verse 8, and can you imagine what it would mean to say a Ukrainian to hear a promise like the one God gave to Israel in verse 8? But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. What a beautiful promise to people who lived in a war-torn country. And the thing is, as you go through the history of these nations, of Syria or Aram, of Phoenicia and of Philistia, you actually see that God did exactly what he had promised. Each of them was brought down never to threaten his people again. And so God is going to keep his promise to guard his people and to keep their land of peace around them. But these verses aren't just about that time and those countries. Because the rest of the Bible shows us that what's referred to here in Zechariah is just a little model. It's a taste and hint in the ancient world of God's true desire And his final promise to all his people everywhere that he is going to make all wars cease and he will establish true and everlasting peace for his people through an entirely new creation where there is no more mourning or crying or pain or death as it says in Revelation chapter 22 when his kingdom comes in its fullness. Can you just imagine how wonderful it would be to wake up one day and just have no fear at all of seeing new threats of war or new stories of violence and oppression and corruption on our media feeds or to experience it in our lives and relationships? Won't that just be wonderful? God says that day is coming. He yearns for it even more than we do. And if we are part of his people in his kingdom, that is the future for us. How good is that? Do you want that? I hope you do. Now, for those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus, who are part of God's kingdom, I think there's a really challenging application for us. How do we put this into practice? Well, I think it's always a helpful question to ask. Actually, we live in the kingdom of this world, 
but we also live in the kingdom of God at the same time. And when you think about where your heart is planted, which kingdom is it for you? Where do you place your hopes and your dreams, your aspirations, your investments? Is it in this world whose nature is fear and uncertainty? Or is it in God's kingdom whose nature is peace and true security? How is your priority in God's kingdom reflected in the investments that you make with your life, your time, your energies, your passions. Uh, If you want some um, practical tips on how you might invest more of your heart in the kingdom of God, uh, then I've got a couple of suggestions for you. Uh, Maybe you aren't yet part of a Bible study, but maybe an investment of a night a week in Bible study would be a great idea. It's not too late to sign up. Uh, What about taking on some form of service here at church and helping out the body of Christ, taking on that commitment of time and energy to serve and lift up the saints? Uh, What about thinking about that person in your life who you could share God's word with in your family and friends? Uh, There are just some practical ways that you can actually invest real time and energy in the kingdom of God even as you live in the kingdom of the world. So that's the first point. Uh, God, sorry, God will reclaim his land of peace. Uh, The second point from the passage from verses 9 to 10 is how God's kingdom is going to come about. Uh, Because even though Syria and Phoenicia and Philistia faded from the scene in history, God's kingdom didn't come fully in Zechariah's day. And again, historically, new nations arose and were enemies of Israel, and sinfulness and corruption were still very present in the land. But verse 9 tells us there's going to be a clear event in the future that signals God's kingdom has now come. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. That makes sense, doesn't it? God's kingdom will come when he sends his king. And this king is described for us in four characteristics uh, in verse 9. And I think there are two characteristics, the first two that sound kind of reasonably kingly, and then two that are a bit unexpected of a king, at least at first glance. So let's go the first two. And uh, it's coming up on the screen. The first two characteristics are he's righteous and victorious. So he's righteous. He is going to be God's perfect representative. There is a king coming who is going to be the very embodiment of God's just and upright rule. And he's victorious. He will defeat all God's enemies and rescue God's people from every threat. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that all the way through, these were actually some of the key stated responsibilities that God had set out for the king of his people, to to reign righteously and to ensure victory for God's people. But even though they might have been fairly conventional in biblical terms, I don't think we should miss how radical they still are in comparison with most human rulers. 
Um, I googled abuse of power as I was getting ready for this morning, and it was like a who's who of human rulers, both ancient and modern. Uh, I think my personal favourite, least favourite, I don't know how to describe it properly, was Caligula, the Roman emperor. And uh, the highlight for me, or low light, uh, when I was reading up about Caligula, was that apparently Caligula once had an entire section of the Colosseum crowd thrown to the lions because he was bored. Now, to be fair, he did first ask them if they had any objections, and no one did. Then again, that may have been because he had all their tongues cut out before he asked. That's awful, isn't it? But rulers who abuse their power, it is frighteningly regular throughout history, isn't it? But it's kind of in all of us too, isn't it? Uh, you know the saying, you can complete it for me. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'll, I'll take that. Um, it is very hard, isn't it? When, when you get a bit of power for yourself, not to abuse it to your own advantage, isn't it? But actually the saying power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is not quite true. Because the one with truly absolute power, God's king, Zechariah 9 says, is righteous and will always use his power justly, fairly and for the good of those under his rule. And so we ought to thank God that he has promised that his king and not any other power in this world will be finally victorious. So, he's righteous and victorious. But then in the second half of the verse, here come the two unexpected characteristics of God's king. That is, he's lowly and riding on a donkey. Uh, it's such a striking image, uh, which if you have been here across the last uh, little while, you may have noticed that's the artwork for our series. Sorry, I couldn't get a picture of it um, in time. Uh, but it is actually the donkey and the king seated on a donkey. But it's striking because it seems so counterintuitive and unexpected for a mighty king who's meant to rule the world. And so I'm sure you're all familiar with the image of Tank Man from Tiananmen Square, where for just a brief moment, an entire column of heavily armed tanks was stopped in its track by an unarmed man carrying a couple of shopping bags. And if you remember that video of him sort of dancing around the front of the tank and the tank just kind of going It's quite striking, isn't it? It's one of the most iconic images of the 20th century. And I actually think it finds resonance with the image here in Zechariah 9. The king who rides on a donkey. Now, donkeys were actually pretty valued animals in the ancient world, but for domestic purposes. The point is, if you're a king riding into a battle, you don't want a donkey, right? You want a big, powerful war horse, one that can drive a chariot like in verse 10. But these verses tell us that the chariots and battle bows, verse 10, are overcome not by a king on an even bigger and more powerful war horse, but on one who's, by one whose steed, like him, is a humble servant. And this, says Zechariah, is going to mark out God's true king when he comes. He will be 
the servant king. Now, can you see how important this is for understanding how Jesus stands at the center of God's plan to save the world, to save you and me? The king whose righteousness and victory comes in humble surface of his people as he suffers and dies to bear their sins on the cross. Uh, Come across with me to a couple of passages in the New Testament that show how much Jesus drew on Zechariah to explain who he was. The first one's from Mark and the second one's from Matthew, but it's very similar to what Tabby read for us from John. Let's look at Mark first. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus' way of referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Matthew, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Zechariah 9.9, say to, you, say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I reckon this is a word we so desperately need at the moment. I mean, we're just seeing such a spike in rulers using raw power and brute force or manipulation to rule, and the inevitable result of their rule is just a growing sense of fear uncertainty and fragility, both for the people impacted by them, as well as, I reckon, in the rulers themselves. But closer to home, if you have ever experienced living under abusive or manipulative power, or if you have exercised abusive or manipulative power over others yourself, you will know very directly how awful and life-destroying it is. And so you see here why it is so wonderful that we have in Zechariah the Lord Jesus saying to us, come to me and find not oppression or coercion, but service and salvation under my rule. Brothers and sisters, what a king we have. Are you living under the blessing of his gentle, humble rule? I hope so. Uh, Because it is a blessing. And in fact, that's what we see in verses 11 to 17. This is the third point now. You see, the result of this king's serving rule is that his people are raised in joy. Verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Uh, And then scan down to verse 16. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. 
They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This whole section from 11 to 17 is just this rich, beautiful poem that calls on these images from Israel's past and present experience. And the point of putting it in poetry is that it is meant to move us and stir us to revel in how good God has been to us. Just cast your eyes over the images that are there. They are just so vivid and thoroughly experiential, aren't they? And I don't know about you, uh, this is probably a word to uh, our church family who's regularly here, but I actually think this is a little challenge, uh, maybe even a little bit of a rebuke to us uh, in our Sydney Anglicanism, that sometimes we can be so concerned to just get things right and not let our emotions get out of hand, which we should get things right, but if we push it too far, we, we actually go the other way and think that if we get emotional at all, we're doing something wrong. But how can you read words like they will sparkle like jewels in a crown or how attractive and beautiful they will be without thinking there ought to be something in us that is just so filled and captivated by the serving love of our Lord Jesus that it can't help but spill out in joyful service of others in everything we do and say. And in fact, even in the New Testament, we get echoes of things like this. So, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, says we are to shine like stars in the sky as we hold out God's word to others. So do you know the joy of being saved by Jesus? And is that what characterizes your life? and your relationships with others. Now, two quick notes about this. First, it's got to be genuine. Right? There can be a pressure on ourselves, or we can put pressure on each other, can't we, to put on a superficial facade of happiness that in the end is actually fake before God and others. No, it's got to come from a genuine, deep, lived experience of knowing that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, through his work. And second, and I think related to this, it's also really helpful to remember that these words of joy were written to people under pressure. There's a clear understanding that they are true, but they are also provisional. And so we've been completely saved in the death and resurrection of Jesus but we are still waiting for the final consummation of that salvation when sin and death and everything that hinders us from joy in God will pass away. And so here in this world, there are still going to be times when it is right to weep and grieve and be sober and serious, even in amongst the joy of salvation that we have here in verses 11 to 17. Well, let me wrap up from fearful to joyful. I think Zechariah 9 is such a timely, wonderful word for our souls, isn't it? God takes a people whose experience of life would have been fearful, just like us, 
and by focusing their sights firmly on his saving, serving king, he fills them with hope and joy. And so I want to finish by reading the summary of the chapter that Wal concludes his sermon script with, because I think it's just an excellent way to leave God's word from Zechariah 9 ringing in our ears as we close. And I found it a really helpful exercise and comfort just to bring each statement as read into conversation with my fears and anxieties about everything that's happening in our world. Maybe you could do similar. So here's what he says. Zechariah 9 teaches us that when God establishes his kingdom, his people will be saved, his enemies destroyed. It teaches us God will establish his kingdom when he sends his king righteous and victorious, bringing peace and salvation. He will be lowly and riding a donkey, but his rule will expand to cover the earth. And when God's king comes, God's people will share in his victory. They'll be rescued like sheep who have been saved by their good shepherd. And they will sparkle like the jewels of his crown. And so it's no wonder that the whole Bible ends with the words of Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world that is so full of fear and uncertainty, but that you have sent your servant king, who by his humble, lowly service of his people, conquered sin and death and everything that holds back our joy from you. And so please help us to trust in him to be part of his kingdom and so have the hope and joy of eternity with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.